If everybody has a Bible, we're heading back to Nehemiah. We're going to look at chapter 5 today. If you want a title, I'll actually give you a title up front. I usually don't do that, but it's uh, Internal Conflict Can Halt God's Work. It's the title of the message. Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. And then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Will you exact usury every one of his brother? And I say to set a great assembly against them, and I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will you even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? And then held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Also I said, it is not good what you do. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that you exact of them. And then said they, we will restore them and require nothing of them. So will we do as you say. And then I called the priest and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. And also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performs not this promise. Even thus shall he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from that time I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year even to the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but I didn't. So did not I because of the fear of God. Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, Neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Moreover, there were at my table a hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers, besides those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days store of all sorts of wine, Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now let's pray. And Father, I just ask once again that you'll speak to all of our hearts in this church, and that you'll speak to us about the concern that we should have for one another, and that we should be a blessing to each other. 
and not be putting each other in bondage in any form. And I just ask that you'll speak that to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word in Jesus' name. All right, so we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. I'm not going to go through every chapter, so don't worry. This is going to be 13 weeks of study. But we've been looking at his great task of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem that lay in rubble and ashes. And it was a devastating sight when he saw it. He couldn't even get his donkey around everywhere to look at it because the piles of rubble were so high. And it was dangerous. It was dangerous in this. The temple had been built, but it and the people were totally defenseless because they had no wall to protect them. So it was serious, and it had to be addressed. And when Nehemiah comes and he sees the situation, he tells the people this. He says, you see the bad situation we are in, how Jerusalem lies wasted, and the gates are burned with fire. And he tells them, he says, come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. That was in chapter 2, verse 17. And so he encourages them to join him, he says, I'm telling you, God's hand, his good hand has been upon me. He's with me. And not only that, the king has given me favor. He's given me letters. He's given me money. He's given me permission to build. We can do it. That's what he's telling them. And the people were energized. And here's what they answered him in the next verse. They said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And I would say this, God's people should always be excited about working for him and serving him. You know why? He promises us the victory when we do that. Here's a verse we haven't heard in a while, 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, because of that, because of the fact that he gives us the victory, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And the people in Nehemiah's day believe that. Their labor wouldn't be in vain. And that's what we have to believe, that our prayers, our trusting God, our holding on to God is not in vain. God will come through. So these people, they're committed. They're excited. And they began to put their hands to the work. But as soon as they did, we talked last week, what happened to them? As soon as anybody begins to get committed, consecrated, and they're going to do the Lord's work. What's the first thing that happens? What do we say? Opposition is what happens. And that's what chapter 4 that we just read in Nehemiah is all about. We said it's the unrelenting conflict and opposition that God's people are going to face when they seek his kingdom. And so we know this verse. It says we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That's as much a promise as healing is. That's the way it's going to be. You say, oh, I haven't had much opposition yet. Just wait till the elections are over. <laughs> we might start experiencing some, right? Well, who leads that opposition? We talked about that. It's Satan. So he will oppose us. He will oppose God's people. And he may work through the unsaved, like we read last week in chapter 4, that Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. Or, like we just read, talked about Wednesday night, it can be religious people like the scribes and the Pharisees of, or Jesus' day. Or he can work to discourage you through well-meaning family members and friends, like Jesus' family. What did they say about him? What you're doing, saying, teaching, you're out of your mind. That's what they said. He's beside himself, and that's what that means. He's out of his mind. So opposition can come from the outside. That's what we call persecution. And the early church experienced that in the book of Acts. 
We get that almost right away with Peter and John. They're arrested, they're threatened, and they're beaten. Why? Because they sinned? No, because they heal a lame man. And what happened? They were ordered, commanded, told to stop speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. And what was Peter's answer to him when that happened? He said, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you'll have to judge. But he said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. And that's the position we have to take. Hey, we're not going to compromise. We're not going to say what we don't have to say to unnecessarily offend somebody, but we're not going to compromise the message. We'll speak it in love, but we have to speak it. And so a lame man, he rose to his feet because of the power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rose to his feet, and the religious community couldn't handle it. They were the ones that were upset. And I'm just going to say those spirits operating through them didn't cease operating in the first century. They are still alive and well today. And I say, when the lame and their legs gain strength in this church and arms and limbs are restored, don't expect everybody to be as thrilled as we will be. Amen. I'm saying, if it happened back then, why would it not happen now? Right. I'm playing the same spirits are alive and well. So chapter 4 is about the external conflict that God's people faced. Chapter 5 is going to deal with internal conflict and the devil's behind it all. If he can't stop building through external threats, his next assault is going to come internally. And sadly, sometimes that's his most effective method or way. And so here we are in Nehemiah 5. Look in verse 1. And it says there, there was a great outcry from the people. A great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. It was men as well as their wives. So we got... The moms, the mothers, and the homemakers are upset, and they are not mad at Sam Ballot. Who are they mad at? What does it say there in verse 1? They're mad at their brethren, the Jews. And what's the problem? Verse 2 tells us what the problem is. They've got large families, and they don't have enough to feed them. That's what it says. For there that said, we are sons and daughters, are many. i got a lot of them. And therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. A better translation is a little more understandable. The NET translation says, with our sons and daughters, we are many. And it says, we must obtain grain in order to eat and stay alive. So, you dated nothing going to get a mama more upset than she's got a bunch of children and aren't getting enough to eat or anything to eat, right? And that's what's happening here. They're getting upset. They need to be fed because what's happened is the workers, their husbands, they had to give up their farms, their trades, their professions for two whole months to go help Nehemiah build that wall. And back home, though, they're not there taking care of the land. They're not there providing, and the people are hungry, large families. So work on the wall had cut out work on the farm, if you want to put it that way. So the problem, really, the source of the problem is at the end of verse 3. So King James, it says that they had to mortgage their lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn. Why, it says, because of the dearth or the famine. So because of this famine that had gone on probably for years, food was scarce. Little food available, and the greedy had inflated the prices on the food so much that people, to be able to buy any kind of food, they had to mortgage their fields, their vineyards, and their homes just to survive. That's what's going on here. And verse 4 tells us there's also... You never can get away from this. There's taxes that had to be paid. 
And so they had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes, and the rate of interest that they had to borrow on, they were being gouged. And that's over in verse 11 that we say that, because Nehemiah tells them, these people that were lending the money and gouging the poor, he says, verse 11, Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. And also, here's the usury, the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that you exacted them. And so that works out to 12% interest a year. Now, that's pretty steep. You know, I looked on my Visa card, and Visa, you know, they're no lover of the common man. And it's 13.5%, and I guarantee you that'll gouge you. So that's what these guys, they're pretty close to that. 12% is a high interest rate. So these people are complaining. The truly destitute, it goes on to say, some of them were so poor that they had to sell their own sons and daughters into slavery. Could you imagine that? It's the only way they could survive. They had to sell their sons and daughters into slavery. And look what their complaint is there in verse 5. They're saying, hey, we are of the same flesh and blood of these fellow Jews. And our children here saying, our children are as good as their children. We're all Jews. We're all the same flesh and blood. Our children are as good as their children. Yet, we have to sell our children to them to be their slaves just so we can even survive. And they're saying, not only that, but we can't even get our children back. Because to do that, they would have to be able to earn money to do it. And they're saying, they've taken all our lands and vineyards and houses. We have nothing to work to earn money to buy them back. They're all in the hands of these greedy men. And they're saying, the sad thing is, these greedy men are our brothers. Our Jewish brethren have got us in bondage. And here's the deal. When Nehemiah hears this report, he is not happy. In fact, it says he's furious, very angry. Look in verse 6. In verse 6, in Nehemiah says, And I was very angry. That word is hot or furious. When I heard their cry, they're crying aloud, it said in verse 1, and the report, those words. And it's like he's saying, what in the world is going on here? I got this wall to build, and yet we got this internal strife that I have to take care of. Right? I can't believe what I'm hearing. Brother against brother. I mean, we've already seen we're all in a bad situation here. Things are bad. We've got to get this wall built. We're all in a bad situation. The wall's in shambles. We should be helping each other, seeking to build each other up, he says. But instead, instead, he says, some are taking advantage of their brothers and greedily living for themselves. And I'm saying this is the message for today that we're going to get out of Nehemiah that we have, as Christians and as members of this church, a responsibility to promote the welfare and the good of God's people. Amen. We all have that responsibility to lift them up and not to neglect them by just seeking our own interest. That's every Christian's responsibility. Can't seek our own interest, and we definitely shouldn't be taking advantage of one another, should we? And I'm not aware of anybody doing that, but I know it's happened. I know it has happened at times, right? And so one man said this. I thought this was good. He said, Nehemiah understood this. This is what he understood. What was the point of building these physical walls around Jerusalem if they weren't building the moral walls of righteousness with God's blessing? Because that's what had caused the walls to be torn down to begin with. 
They weren't loving God and they weren't putting the second commandment. They weren't loving each other as themselves. They were ripping each other off. That's what caused his judgment to come in the first place. So what's the point of building these walls back up again if we're not taking care of the moral issues is what he's saying. And so God had called Israel. They really were. It was in the law. The law is not all this legalistic. You can't do anything. There was a community of love set up if they would obey the law. It was right there. So the golden rule, it didn't begin with Jesus. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. Oh, you know where that verse was at? It was in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And God says the reason why is I am the Lord. And the facts presented to Nehemiah, it wasn't the one neighbor loving another neighbor. That's not what the facts he was presented with were. So he's furious. And here's what his response is. It's down in verse 7. He's angry, and he says in verse 7, Then I consulted myself. What that's telling us is he is hot, but he sits down and he thinks about, What should I do about this situation I'm faced with? People taking advantage of each other. Internal conflict with these people building the walls. And he came up with solution. And what he did was he confronted the nobles and the rulers right to their face. And that's what it says. He says, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers right to their face. And I sent it to them, you exact usury, every one of his brother. And the next thing he does is at the end of verse 7 there, he says, I gathered a great assembly together. We're going to settle this thing in front of everybody. Everybody's going to know what's going on here. He wants them to hear what he had to say. And so when he convenes that meaning, the first thing he does in verse 8 is he appeals to their conscience. So he confronts the rich Israelites in verse 8, and he says, because of their poverty, what had happened was because some of these Jews, their poverty and need, they had to sell themselves to Gentile heathens as slaves. And he says, whenever we could, me and others here, we bought them back out of that bondage from the heathen. And he's like... The ones that we redeemed at great cost, he's saying, now you rich people are going to take your redeemed brothers, ones that were freed from bondage, one that we had mercy on, and you're going to bring them back into bondage as your slaves? <laughs> he says, you guys are acting like a bunch of pawnbrokers, right? And cruel ones at that. And so look what he tells him at the beginning of verse 9. He tells him, he says, what you're doing is not good. It is not right. You ever gone up to somebody and said, you know what? What you're doing is just not right. You know, you say, and then you better duck. <laughs> Depending on who you're telling that to, right? But here, I'll tell you what. These guys, when Nehemiah confronted them like he did, they were convicted to the core. They were. And they had to be like the scribes and Pharisees that brought that woman to Jesus that was caught in adultery. And Jesus confronts them just like Nehemiah did, right to their face. He said, he that is without sin among you, let him be the one to first cast a stone at her. And then he stoops down and writes, and he lets that word have its effect. And it does, because the next thing we read is, these scribes and Pharisees, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. And I'm saying when you're talking to somebody about the Lord, a person's conscience is your best weapon to bring conviction. They can't get away from it. They can't deny it. And the law, it's God's voice, is written on their heart. And that's what happened here to these men. 
looking at the end of verse 8, Nehemiah rebukes them, and it says what? They couldn't say a word. It says, then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Their consciences convicted them of their guilt, and it shut their mouths. What could they say? They knew he was right. And so Nehemiah, he uses the word redeemed there. And he says, after our ability, we have redeemed our brethren. And Scott talked about this. God's people have always been a redeemed people, haven't we? People that are bought with a price. So every Christian is redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That's what it says in 1 Peter, doesn't it? Redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And so you know what that makes us? Precious. Not precious like your grandma would say, but precious in the sense of valuable, right? So hey, these people, he's saying it's your brothers. He keeps using the word brothers too. It's your brothers. They've been redeemed. He keeps talking that way. And he's saying you rich people despise these ones because they're poor and don't have much. He's saying, but they're precious in God's sight. You have no right to do that. No right to take advantage of them. It's not right, he's telling them. So put something there in Nehemiah. I want you to, if you would please, turn over to James 2. James 2, beginning in verse 1, James writes, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. But you say to the poor, You stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Well, are you not then partial to yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? And if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and here's Leviticus, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says, you do that, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, he says, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. And so speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. Look at him, verse 5 there. He says, listen up, brethren, hearken, my beloved brethren. Think about this, he's saying. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world? He's saying, not everybody. There are some that are rich and wealthy. But he's saying, for the most part, this is a general rule is what he's saying. Hasn't God made his choice the poor ones? Hasn't he done that? The poor in this world. And he goes on to say, they aren't going to be poor for long, though, because they are rich in faith. And that faith is going to make them heirs of the kingdom. Not poor for long. But he goes on to rebuke them. He says, but you, like Nehemiah told the rich people there, he's talking to the Christians there, James is writing to. He says, but you have despised the poor. And we've got to watch that we don't do that. I'm saying, I mean, we kind of got like a certain class in here. We, you know, but if 
Somebody lower class comes in, you got to watch how you treat them, what you think, what are you doing here, whether you talk to them or not or ignore them. Amen? Amen? We really do have to watch that because look at the contrast James is making. He says, listen, you guys, you despise the poor, but those are the very ones that God chooses. You know, I'll tell you, when I used to go downtown on Saturdays and you hand out tracts, and I'm saying, you hand out tracts and you're around these rich upper class people. I mean, they despise the literal ground you walk on. I don't mean anything by this. I'm not prejudiced. But the poor black people, they take them and thank you. Always respectful, humble, and they'll talk to you. I'm saying that's who God's chosen. And it's not for us to look down on because I'm saying the rich, they do. They despise the very ground you walk on. Out there handing me a gospel track. <laughs> I don't need that thing, right? You know, one time I heard this testimony. This was a good testimony. Jim Cimbala talked about he's, after a service one time, he's standing there beside the pulpit or wherever he was. He looks out in the aisle and he says, there's this black man standing there. He said his hair was matty, a mess. His clothes looked terrible. And so Cimbala, he lives in New York City. He's just thinking, here's another guy that's going to hit me up for money. So he says he sees this guy, and then the guy starts walking towards him. He says he reaches in his pocket. He's going to pull his money clip out and give him a $20 bill because he's thinking that's what most of these guys want. That's what he wanted. And that guy walks up to him, and he says, preacher, sees what he's doing. He says, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. He says, I want this Jesus that you're talking about. He says, I'm about to die in the streets. I want this Jesus that you're just witnessing to here. That's what I'm up here for, not your money. And the guy came close to him. This guy had been living in a car. And Symbolus said his smell made him gag when he got close to him. He said he had to turn his head away while he's talking to him to get his breath. Because he couldn't breathe with the smell coming off of this guy. And the guy asked Symbolus, you know, asked him, I believe this is right, asked him to pray for him, to be saved. And he put his head on Symbolus' chest. And that guy dresses nice. He's got nice suits. And here's this guy that smells, his hair's nasty and oily, and, just, and he's got him up against his chest, and that stench is coming right up. And Cymbala said, the Lord spoke to him, he said, this is who I died for. And he said, all of a sudden, that smell of urine and vomit that was all over this man became the sweetest fragrance he had ever smelled. Now, I thought that was good. And I'll tell you what, I've had to think of that testimony many times going into prison. In the segregation area, there are times that some of these guys, just whatever, you can't hardly stand there to talk to them with what's coming at you. And it is. It's very hard. But this is who God came for. I just remember that testimony of Jim Cimbala. That's who he died for. I'm not too good to sit here and smell you, look at you, talk to you. And that's how we have to be, don't we? Whether it's in the streets, your neighbor, whoever, somebody you come across because James says we should not despise him. Look what he says there in verse 2. There come also in a poor man, he says, in vile raiment. You know what the Greek is? It says they, the guy comes in here, not just that he looks poor, he's got dirty, filthy clothes. That's what vile raiment means. He's saying don't ignore that guy. Don't stick him in the back because he smells kind of bad. Get him up here at the preacher. I'll smell him. And then you got the nice looking guy comes in. You want to make sure they got a nice seat because there's somebody to do in town. Oh, so glad to see you. We'll have lunch with you afterwards. We can't ignore the other person. Amen? Amen. Got to remember that. Right? 
And look what it says here, too. Another point I want to make to lead into the next point. Look what it says in verses 12 to 13. It says, so speak ye and so do ye. Say, this is how we need to talk and act as people, saints, that we're going to be judged one day by the law of liberty. And here's what it says about that, verse 13. For you will have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. And so what is James using there as a motivation? What's he using there as a motivation for treating poor people and all people, your brothers and sisters, right? He's reminding us, isn't he? The fear of the Lord. One day, judgment day is coming. And everyone in here, can I hear amen? Are we all desirous of mercy? Boy, do we need mercy on that day from the Lord. And he reminds us, though, that if you have shown no mercy, you're not going to get mercy. Saying that should govern how we act and speak about anybody in this church or out of this church. So go back to Nehemiah 5, if you would, please. Nehemiah 5, and that is exactly how Nehemiah pleads with the nobles and the rulers in verse 9. Look what he says. And also I said, it's not good what you're doing. What you're doing is not right. He says, ought ye not, he says, to walk in the fear of our God? Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God? He says, don't you know that the way you're treating your brothers, God looks down on that. He is not happy about that because God delights in mercy. And he's saying, you are not walking in the fear of the Lord. Because the man or woman that fears God knows that we, he or she, depends on God to show him mercy. That's what the fear of God is. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what do we need to keep in mind? We need to keep in mind and be reminded of constantly Matthew 18. Because we're constantly being offended by each other, by people in our families, by people else. Aren't we constantly being offended? And we need to remember that story, the man who owed his Lord, and it's just an astronomical amount. They gave the biggest number they could in the Greek language. That's how much money he owed. And it represents our sin in the sight of God. Each of us, our individual sin in the sight of God. Like the song we sing, we owed a debt that we could not pay. And so this Lord, he has his books balanced, and this man is found out. And at first, the Lord's going to deal with this man in justice. He's going to give him justice. He, his wife, and his children are going to be sold into what? Slavery. That's what he told her, until they could pay off the debt, which they never would. So they were forever going to be eternally in bondage is what was going to happen. And when the servant heard that, it said he fell on his knees and he pleaded for mercy. And the Lord of that servant, it says, represents God. It says because of that, it says he was moved with compassion. That's our God. We say God delights in mercy. Moved with compassion and loosed him. And it says forgave him the debt. That's all of us in here, isn't it? An astronomical debt we owed the Lord. And he said later, I forgave you all that debt just because you begged me. Just because you had nothing he could do. He couldn't do anything to pay any of it off. Just because you begged me, because you asked me. And then what happens, though? That forgiven servant 
goes out and finds a fellow servant that owed him a very small amount in comparison. And what does it say he did to him? He went out and grabbed hold of him. And then it says he grabs him around the throat. He's choking the guy. Pay me what you owe, he tells him. The guy's like, oh, well, I will, I will. So give me a few months. It would have only probably taken him a couple months. But he's choking the dude. Pay me what you owe. And the report gets back to the Lord of what happened. And he calls this man back, this man that had been forgiven, that owed the astronomical amount of money, all of us. And here's what he said. Oh, thou wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you desirest me. Shouldest thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? Isn't that what Nehemiah is saying? Shouldn't you all have compassion on your fellow Jewish brothers? And that's what he's saying to all of us here. Shouldn't you have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. This is Jesus' words. He says, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother his trespasses. And that is hard many times, is it not? And that is where we got to pray for the grace of God to please help me. Because it's not in me to want to forgive this person for whatever's happened. So don't we have to do that many times? He's got to put that in our hearts. It's not natural to us. We don't have it in us. But God through his Holy Spirit can give us a forgiving heart. And so I think we need to have it tattooed on our foreheads. I'd like to get it tattooed on Somebody's in there so I can see it every now and maybe Thomas, I'll see it every day, right? Tattooed what? That we are undeserving. We need to remember that. And if we want God's mercy and forgiveness, we need to show his mercy and forgiveness to others, right? Not so we'll earn it. You're not going to earn mercy. Well, what does that do? It proves that we have a regenerate heart, a new heart, the heart of God, the love of God in us. So if we want to receive mercy of the Lord, we need to treat others mercifully. And the fear of God will work that in our hearts. It will. We talked about the fear of the Lord not too long ago. Proverbs 14.31 says this. Listen. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. So you oppress the poor, all you're doing is showing you have contempt for God. No regard for him. He goes on to say, though, Proverbs 14.31 but whosoever is kind to the needy honors God. Amen? That's a good word right there. Whosoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whosoever is kind to the needy honors God. And so, if you would please, turn back to Leviticus 25. And I'd like us to see, in his law, God has a lot to say about love. It's not legalism. Leviticus 25. And I'd like, as we read here, two times we're going to see here when God talks about taking care of the poor, he talks twice about the fear of God as part of the motivation to do it. I thought that was interesting. So Leviticus 25, 35, it says, And if thy brother is waxen poor and falls in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, and though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. And look, here's what they weren't supposed to be doing, but these Jews were doing in Nehemiah's day. He says, take thou no usury of him, or increase, but do what? Fear thy God, 
that thy brother may live with thee, and thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. He's telling him, you people need to remember you had nothing. You were slaves. You own nothing. And so you better remember that when you deal with other people that have nothing. In verse 39, he says, And if your brother that dwells by thee be waxen poor and be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant, but as a hired servant. And as a sojourner, he shall be with thee and shall serve thee unto the year of jubilee. And then shall he depart from thee, both he and his children with him, and shall return unto his own family, and unto the possessions of his fathers shall he return. For they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondmen, and you shall not rule over him with rigor, but, he says it again, you shall fear thy God. So that's the way it should be. We should be looking to help our poor brethren, not oppress them, not take interest from them, not look for ways to take advantage of them if they work for you. You ought to pay them the best wage you possibly can if you got a brother working for you and treat him well. Give him a little time off every now and then, paid maybe, whatever, right? So let's ask ourselves, how does our scorecard look with what we've talked about? Have we been, and I know a lot of people in here are, I'm not, this is no accusation. Our, I think our church is very good about this. But have we... All of us has to ask ourselves if we've been helping, lifting, strengthening the Lord's people. Have we been kind to the needy when we've seen them? And so, like I said, many people in our church here do a good job of looking out for others. They really do. And a lot of people do things you just don't know about it, but it's going on. They're doing it quietly. And lately we've been talking about these kinds of things, and I'm encouraged because people are giving heed to what the Lord has to say. I have people come up, hey, is there things we can do to help? I've had two different people do that. Ways to help. Is there needs we have in the church? And there are <laughs> that can be met. It's not always convenient, is it, to do that? That's the thing. We always have something we'd like to be doing. It's not always convenient to help somebody out that you know is in need, right? And the Good Samaritan, we need to keep that in mind. He had to go out of his way to help that man that had been robbed and attacked. It was inconvenient. He had somewhere he was going. And he had to stop what he was doing. And it took time to take care of that person, didn't it? And it was costly. He basically, without getting into the whole text, he basically gave the innkeeper his credit card. Just whatever you rack up on that credit card's fine. Whatever it takes to get this man well, that's what I'm going to do, and I'll come back and check on him, right? And what did that prove? All that proved is that he had a regenerate heart. That's what that story is all about. Did you know that? Because the priest and the Levite, the way they acted, walking around him, they see him over there, man, you're going to get far away from him. Don't even want to get close to that need. What does that do? That just shows they had an unregenerate heart. We forget that. Do you know what the parable of the Good Samaritan was all about? It's because a lawyer came up to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is saying, do, you can't do anything. You need because this is what you'll do with the heart you have now in your natural self. You'll walk away from people with needs. It shows you need help. He's saying this Samaritan here who you despise, he didn't do anything. His heart was changed. And out of that changed heart is where his actions came from. That was his answer to that man. Your actions, how we act, the love of God in our heart, how we demonstrate it, that proves whether we know the Lord. That's what 1 John's talking about. So back to Nehemiah 5, 
The third principle we're going to see here is that we have a responsibility to ease others' burdens. And look in verse 10. He says, I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn, but he says, I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, verse 11, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that you exact of them. So Nehemiah, he's saying, I'd let people grain and wine and money or whatever, but he goes, I wasn't charging interest or usury. Because usury in the Bible is always associated with harsh treatment, with oppressing people. It wasn't so much a matter of what was legal, what they legally, technically could do, but it was what was their moral obligation. And so he's telling them, the rich, you should have been easing the burdens of your poor brothers, not increasing it. And that's why he says in verse 11, what we just read, he's basically saying, restore unto them. He goes, what you need to do now, I don't care whether this is the year of Jubilee or not, but we're going to treat it now like it's the year of Jubilee. You're going to give them back everything you took from them, their lands, their vineyards, all this interest that you oppress them with. You're going to give it all back to them. He's saying, that's what you're going to do. Restore. And he says, we're going to work together to build these walls and we're going to ease each other's burdens and isn't that the way it should be here amen. amen ease each other's burdens we're working on building a wall here look for ways to help each other out and we're always obligated as christian to ease the burdens of fellow believers amen we are isn't that what it says oh no man anything but we have an obligation we're going to owe them something forever what is that to love that obligation never goes away. Well, I'm not in debt. Well, you're in debt to love as long as you breathe, right? That's the way it's going to be. Now, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, speaking of the gifts, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. So in the middle of that list is helps. Now, helps, I haven't seen a book yet on the charismatic gifts on helps. That's not going to be your, your number one charismatic bestseller, <laughs> helps. But what does helps mean? It means to give relief or to give aid, to help minister to the weak and needy. In other words, to ease their burdens. And that's the third point. We have an obligation to ease people's burdens. And W.E. Vine in his New Testament dictionary says about the word helps, he says it's not an official functionaries that are in view in the term helps, but rather the functioning of those who, like the household of Stephanus, devote themselves to minister to the saints. So in other words, it's not somebody that we hire here as the church, that he is the paid minister of helps. And if you need something, he will show up to your door with the care package. So in other words, that's not what it's talking about. But it's talking about it's a gift of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. It's somebody or whoever people that are anointed, and God has put it on their hearts to be devoted to the service of the saints. That's what it is. One scholar said it this way, helps is anything that would be done for poor or weak or outcast brethren. So some are going to have that gift, that special gift in a special way. But we all have that obligation. 
So if you would, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. In verse 14. Look what it says. Now we exhort you, brethren, Paul writes, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. So when it says comfort the feeble-minded, feeble-minded are not people that don't do well in school. They're not people that have learning disabilities. That's not what that word means. But the feeble-minded are saints that are discouraged or the faint-hearted. They're having a tough time. They're in a trial. It's been a long time, and they need some encouragement. It's talking about someone that's discouraged or faint-hearted. Maybe they got a bad home situation, and you know that. And he's saying, hey, we should encourage those, comfort those people. So God can put it on your heart to maybe share a scripture, give an encouraging word, or maybe just, he just put it on my heart. I just want to share this testimony with you. I don't know why. It's just something I want to share with you. And it just may be the very thing that person needs that day. We need to be sensitive to that and pray about that for God to show us how we can do things like that, right? I mean, I'm not a big one on sharing a lot of scripture, but I occasionally I'll have God put it on my heart to share something with somebody else. I'll just believe God's put it on my heart to do that or whatever, or share something. We don't know our words can build each other up and encourage each other, right? Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, pleasant to the soul, and their health to our flesh. We need to remember that. Encouraging words. Sometimes somebody will say something to you, and it, it's just like, yeah, you're, you're listening, but it just stays with you. It comes back to you later, and you're like, man, that is just really a blessing what they said. And they might have just been talking, but just an encouraging word. We just need to realize how much our words impact each other. And an encouraging word, it's like a word coming from a far country. It's refreshing to the soul, right? That's what we need to do. And then he goes on to say there, to support the weak is what the King James says, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. And you know what that word, I thought this was interesting. That word for support means someone that you have a strong interest in. That's interesting, isn't it? Support the weak, someone that you have a strong interest in. So you see somebody that's struggling in any way, financially, mentally, spiritually, whatever. You don't ignore them. Instead, you get a strong interest in them, is what it's saying, in their well-being. And it also means it has the connotation of you wrap your arms around them and keep them from falling to support the weak. You've got an interest. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to help and keep you up. I thought that was good. Support the weak. And that's what Paul told the elders of the church who gathered to hear his last words. That's what he said unto them in Acts 20. He says this, he says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And as a man said, there is somebody in the orbit of all of our lives. There is somebody in the orbit of all of our lives that we can help. Somebody, as Jesus said, that we can give to, whether it's a neighbor, a friend, someone at church, a family member. So we should not be living just for our own pleasures and what we like to do. That's not the way we should be living our lives as Christians, is it? But like our Lord, we should be seeking to serve. And I mean, there are some people that are really good examples of that in this church. I mean, great examples, convicting examples. And here's what we need to remember. 
When you do that, when you seek to serve, when you seek to support the weak, comfort those who are discouraged, whatever it is you're doing to help the brethren here, God takes notice. We don't need to worry about that the pastor notices, that everyone at church notices. That's not what we need to do because God himself tells us, I'll take notice. Here's what he says. Hebrews, he says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So God says you minister to the saints and do minister. He says he's not unrighteous to forget that labor of love that you've provided, right? So when you pray, you give alms, you help somebody out, whatever it is you do, God will reward us. And so back in Nehemiah chapter 5, if you go on to study, we're not going to take that much time on the rest of these verses, but in Nehemiah 5, you go back to study the rest of that chapter, you'll see there that Nehemiah practiced what he preached. And so in verse 14, what that tells us is that as governor, Nehemiah didn't take the support he could have gotten from the people. So he's, he had every right to tax them and get food and money from them. He says, I'm not going to do it because I knew they were oppressed and they didn't have much to give. And so he let that go. In verse 15, he says, but the former governors, oh, they did. They took their bread, their wine, and their money. They got fat off the backs of the people. But look at verse 15, at the end of verse 15. But Nehemiah says, so I didn't. I didn't do that. And why didn't he do that? Why didn't he get fat off the people? It says right there at the end of verse 15, because of the fear of God. So God's fear kept him from greed, kept him from taking advantage of God's people. Verse 16 says, the land was cheap then. He says, but I didn't buy any land. I wasn't trying to take advantage of the poor and buy up their land. He says, God has sent me here to serve the people, build the wall and help him. And that should be all of our attitudes, right? God has sent us here to serve the people and build the wall and help him. And that's the kind of heart, like I said, we should all have towards each other, looking for ways to help and share. And that's the way God will build our walls here. Because if we neglect the poor and the weak, if we put our interest ahead of others, what does it say? The building's going to stop. That was the danger of what was happening there. And Nehemiah said, man, we've got to do something about this. We've got to get everybody taken care of. We can't have the poor workers running off. So that's what Ephesians 4 tells us. It says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands the thing which is good. Why? Paul says that he may have to give to him that needs. That's our main purpose in labor, that we can have extra to help somebody else out, not to build bigger barns. So we're going to observe communion today. And I'd like us to take a look before we do at the end here right now at 1 Corinthians 11. Because in essence, Paul is addressing the very same issue in the church at Corinth that Nehemiah was. The rich were neglecting the poor in Corinth and despising the poor and those that lacked. So they weren't sharing what they had, but they were eating and drinking and getting drunk while others sat hungry. So you look over in 1 Corinthians 11. Look what it says, verse 17. And let's think about this as we read this, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as the church, it says, 
I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And when you come together, therefore, into one place, the local church gathers into one place. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Paul says. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He says, I'm not going to praise you. I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home that you come not together with condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. And so let's just take a moment here now, and let's examine our own hearts, not the hearts of others. And if we're convicted of living selfish lives, if we're not treating our brothers and sisters right, if we've been critical, if there's unforgiveness in our hearts, if we've neglected needs, then let's repent and make things right. God said what? He said, if we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. He says, but let each person examine himself. And after you've done that, he says, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So listen, the communion table, I believe it's a time of joy, but it's also a time that we should take to examine our commitment to the Lord and to each other. That's what we should be doing. Is our commitment what it should be to the Lord and to each other? And let's do that now. Let's pray. And after I get done praying, if the men would come and, and pass out the elements. So, Father, I just ask that you'll just search our hearts now and, and speak to us as you did today in your word. That do we regard each other, Lord, as precious and redeemed in your sight? And are we walking in the fear of the Lord that we're showing mercy to others, knowing that we will depend on your mercy on that day of judgment? And are we looking for ways to ease our brothers' and sisters' burdens through a word of encouragement and giving and just blessing them in any way we can, Lord? I just ask that you'll show all of us where we've fallen short if we need to, to get forgiveness, if we have unforgiveness harbored in our heart, Lord, that you'll show us that, that we can deal with that or attitudes towards other, or critical spirits, Lord, that we can all partake of this body and blood, your body and blood through the elements, the bread and the cup, in a worthy manner.
And I just thank you that you'll do that for us all now in Jesus' name.